This morning, we're going to be uh, back in 2 Corinthians. So I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn there. We started this series last week. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians for six months through the end of June. And today, we get into the first meaty section of this letter. So while you're turning there, I want to set it up for you. I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It's a letter that Paul wrote to some friends of his in a church that he helped to found, a church that was now in Paul's absence having to decide what kind of church they were going to be. They were receiving teaching from people who disagree with Paul about some really important things, and they had options. They had different ways they could be. Paul's hearing about some of this, some of the, some of the misinformation they've received about Jesus that they've been tempted to believe, and he's writing to them to try to help bring them back around, to try to help correct something that could lead to them being less, uh, uh, being a community of Christians that doesn't reflect something true about Jesus in their lives and the way they care for one another. We talked last week about the fact that the, the kind of culture they were a part of is actually really similar to ours in some important ways. And that's going to come out today, especially as we talk about suffering. Paul begins his letter with a passage about affliction. That's his word for it, or suffering. Every culture, everywhere, has to come up with some resources for helping its people understand what to do with their pain. A culture is just a a way of life, a set of norms, a set of things that we just assume about the way things are. And one of the most fundamental parts of a culture is how it helps its people understand what to do with things that don't go as they wish they would, with pain or sorrow or hardship. And we belong to a culture now that has robbed us of some of the most important resources we need to deal with suffering and hardship in a productive and effective and and fruitful way. Let me say it differently. We, and and the Corinthians too, we're part of a culture that has given us some norms that just can't account for suffering very well. In our culture, it's normal to be obsessed with status. We talked about this last week. This is one of the places where we're really similar to the Corinthians. To be obsessed with our status with lives that are curated and filtered for the viewing pleasure of other people. And in a culture like that, where that kind of status obsession is normal, suffering is going to make us ashamed. Suffering will be this sort of failure to attain the life that we know other people want and that we want for ourselves. Our culture has made comfort normal. And thanks be to God, in a lot of ways, it's, it's, it's medical advances that have taken a lot of aches and pains that our grandparents would have taken for granted out of our experience. It's a place where there's a lot more food and shelter available to a lot more people than in most places in the world, most times in history. Being comfortable is not a bad thing, but we've become accustomed to it. We've come to see it as normal. And that makes us surprised and even outraged or violated when we suffer. We feel entitled to a better life than that. In our culture, it's normal to be focused on the material world, on the things that we get, the things that we acquire, the things that we want. That's normal, and it's reinforced all around us, all the time. And in a world, in a culture, where that has become normal, the the, the ladder climbing into more and more and more and more than suffering... It's just going to drive us to despair. It'll only ever be a detour or a roadblock 
thief of what is good in life. Our culture has made these things normal and it's made suffering a lot more difficult to understand how to accept and move through. And the Corinthians were in a very similar time, or a very similar uh, culture t- to ours. And I think that's why Paul starts his letter here. He starts his letter with affliction and how to think about it and how to help one another through it. Because he knew his friends that he was writing to did not have the categories they were going to need to handle that well. There's nothing surprising about affliction. It's universal. Paul knew that, and he wrote this section that we're going to spend time in this morning to bring God into that universal experience, to help us think about it more clearly, and to help us help each other through it. So that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm going to take two simple steps this morning. I want us to look at what God is building, based on what Paul says here. Paul points us to what God is building in the church. And then I want us to consider uh, how we can join him. What God is building, and then how we can join him in what he's building. And I want to do that, here's how I want to go about it this morning. I want to come over the entire passage, verses 3 to 11, and help you to see the forest. That's the what God is building section. Paul is describing a kind of community and a way that that community will engage with affliction or suffering. I want to make sure the forest is really clear. And then, because it's a smaller section and we can do this more easily, I want to come back over the same ground and pick out some of the trees in the forest and show you how those trees can help you know what your role is in in joining God and what he's building. What God is building is a community of afflicted comforters. That's what we're going to talk about under the forest section. And then I want to talk about how we can join him in that. Now, the first thing I want to do here is read the text. So if you would, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to begin in verse 3 of 2 Corinthians 1 and read through verse 11. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we've set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to make sure we see what God is building here. Paul's describing a kind of culture. 
He's describing a certain form of community. And he's celebrating God as the one who's building it. I want to make sure you see what, what it looks like before we turn to some really practical steps we can take to lean into or join in with what God is doing. Here's what God is building. Verses 3 to 7 describe a kind of community rallying in affliction to comfort. And then verses 8 to 11, Paul practices what he preaches and he offers some of the same comfort he's telling us to offer each other in verses 3 to 7. So when you, look at the, when you think about the forest, think about these two sections, verses 3 to 7, where Paul's describing a kind of community, and then verses 8 to 11, where he's practicing what he preaches, where he's building that community, where he's taking a step to actually comfort people based on the comfort he received. That's what we're, that's what we're going to look at here from a very high level before we get into some of the, some of the trees. Paul begins his, his letter here, after, the, after telling them who it is that's writing and naming who it is he's writing to, he begins his letter by celebrating God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a celebration. So we should ask, what's he celebrating God for? What is it about God that he's, that he's celebrating here? The way he names God gives us a clue. He names him as not just the Father of Jesus, but the Father of mercies. It's a word that means compassion or pity or to be moved by the suffering of other people. God is defined by his care for those who are hurting. And then he calls him the God of all comfort. So he's defined by the fact that he comforts, that he takes action to alleviate the pain of people that he cares for. He's a father of mercy, moved by others' pain, and he's the God of comfort who always takes action to to help those who look to him in faith. So Paul's named him, but then the bulk of the paragraph is Paul describing how God, the God of comfort, comforts people who are hurting. What he's celebrating God for, what he's blessing God for, is the way God gives comfort to those who are in affliction. And that is through community. Verse 4 describes it. God is building what I'm calling a community of afflicted comforters. Notice the two words that came up a lot, starting in verse 4. Affliction and comfort. They come up over and over. If you read back through it, these key words just keep popping up. Affliction and comfort. Affliction and comfort. But I want you to pay really close attention to how affliction and comfort are connected in these verses. There's a very specific chain that we need to follow. Verse 4 says that God, the God of all comfort, comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So what's the chain? The chain begins with our affliction. Paul just assumes it. He doesn't say... And if you should find yourself being afflicted, then this ensues. No, he's in our affliction. It's an assumption. Everybody's afflicted. It's a word that means burdened or weighed down. Think of yourself as pinned down by life. The afflicted are those who are just pinned down by life. So he assumes that's going to be true of everybody, and that's where the chain begins with you burdened, pinned down, afflicted. Now, The next link is that God comforts us, and Paul says it's in all our affliction. That his comfort stretches as far as our pain. That's who he is. He's the father of mercy. He's the God of all comfort. He comforts us because that's who he is, and that's what he does. But notice that the chain doesn't stop there either. This isn't you're pinned down by life, then God comforts you. End of story. He comforts us in our affliction 
So that, Paul says, the purpose here is not just so that we're comforted, but so that we can comfort others who are afflicted. So that we can pass on the same comfort that God gave us. I think of the chain as one of those old-timey fire drills, you know, that you see in the old cowboy movies where, like, the general store is on fire, and there's, like, a well at the town square, and all the townspeople come rushing from their homes and form that line, and they're just dipping the bucket into the well, and they're passing it down, bucket to bucket, bucket from hand to hand to hand, and then they douse the fire with the bucket. I actually don't think I've ever seen a movie in which that worked. It looks like a lot of wasted effort and definitely a lot of spilled water, but you get, you, the image hopefully will help you. I think of the chain here as one of those fire drills where God comforts us and we pass on the comfort and we pass on the comfort and we pass on the comfort and we toss that comfort onto whatever fire the person at the end of the line is experiencing. Comfort and affliction are meant to be experienced in community. The comfort that Paul is celebrating in God, the reason he's blessing God is that he's the God of all comfort, but it The comfort that he's blessing God for is a comfort that comes through community. It's God's comfort. He's the source of it. He's the substance of it. He's the reason it's not just empty words. He's the one who backs it up with action that changes things. But it always comes through us. Paul's describing a community in which everybody's afflicted and in which everyone is comforted and when everyone is doing the comforting. The next verse is just build on this same theme. That's the basic idea. It's all through the text. But the next verse is just build it out even more. In verses 5 to 7, Paul just keeps talking over and over about all the things that we share. He says we share in Christ's sufferings. So we're alike in our pain. We share in Christ's comfort. We're alike in that which we turn to in our pain. When I'm afflicted, he says in verse 6, if, if we, speaking of himself, are afflicted, it's for your comfort. I'm being afflicted so that I'll know how to comfort you. My affliction translates into comfort for you. When I'm comforted, you're comforted. Basically, we share everything. Then Paul starts in verse 8 to do it himself, to do what he's talked about. In verse 8, he shifts from talking about comfort and affliction in general to, to practicing what he preaches. It gives us an example of what this looks like in practice. He's really honest about his experience. Paul's not trying to impress anybody here. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction we experience, and not just any affliction. He says, we were burdened beyond our strength so far that we despaired even of life. Felt like I had the sentence of death. He felt like a condemned man, a dead man walking. That's how bad it got for him, and he's not holding back. He's not painting a rosier picture. There's no filter that he's processing this through. He's just honest. We're not sure exactly what he's referring to here. He doesn't say. The book of Acts talks about a lot of bad things that happened to him when he was in Asia. Several times where he was beaten or stoned even. There were times where mobs rioted against him for the things that he was preaching and tried to kill him and he had to escape barely with his life. I'm not sure exactly what he had in mind, but I wonder if his description of what he felt of his experience sounds familiar. Burdened so far beyond his strength that he despaired of life itself. What's he doing here? He's being honest about how bad it got for him so that he can tell you how good and sufficient 
God in his comfort really is. Verse 9, all of this affliction being taken to the very edge was only, in Paul's mind, to teach me not to rely on myself, not on my strength, but on the God who always gives comfort and who has the power to raise even the dead. Paul is modeling the kind of community ministry he's talked about in verses 3 to 7. That's what he's doing. Here's how bad it got for me, and here's how good God was for me in the middle of it. Now, I want to sum up what the forest is to make sure it's really, really clear. God's been ta- Paul has been talking about comfort and affliction, about our affliction and God's comfort. Here's what God is building. Here's what Paul's celebrating in his blessing. A community of afflicted people comforting one another. He's not, descri- he's not thinking about the church, in other words, as, a kind of, uh, as having a kind of wing to it that's like a primary care provider where the sick people come to get care. It's like you've got the division of the church with the, the, the providers and the division of the church with the, the patients and all the people with the real problems go to all the people who've got all the answers and the solutions and they get what they need. Sometimes we can think about it that way, especially when we're suffering. A lot of times we feel like we're different from all the people who have it all together. Paul doesn't think of that, think of the community that way at all. He's thinking of everybody as afflicted, so everybody needing care, and of everybody as having something to offer. Because there isn't anyone in the church who hasn't been comforted by God and can't pass on that comfort to somebody else. It's not the haves giving to the have-nots. It's a community of equal sharing. Everyone's afflicted, needing comfort. Everyone's equipped by God to give comfort. Everyone shares everything. There's a challenge to us here, friends. Before we move on to how we can join God, there, there, there is a challenge to us here. Maybe you like to see yourself in the role of caregiver, but don't want to see yourself needing care. You're used to being the one God uses to encourage other people, maybe. And pray, praise God for that. But feel very hesitant, if not unwilling, to be honest about the things in your life where you are burdened beyond your strength. If, if that's where you struggle, and Paul would have you know that it's unhealthy, not just for you, but for the culture of honesty and openness that we want in our congregation. For you to be unwilling to need help from other people. The kind of culture Paul's talking about here is a miracle when it happens. It only works with absolute trust. Vulnerability, openness. And if you're unwilling to receive care from others, then you're going to hold us back from the culture that we believe God is building in our church. It's not just unhealthy for you, it's unhealthy for everybody. But maybe you're on the other side of things. Maybe you're unwilling to give care. Maybe you've learned the hard way that if you, when you do enter in to other people's pain, you get hurt too. That when you enter into a mess, you get messy. That it's really difficult and emotionally exhausting to carry people's sorrow with them. That's true. 
It is true that it will complicate your life to take up this role. It would be easier in some ways not to. But in Christ, according to Paul, we share everything. What this text is saying is that you don't have the option, friend, to be with Jesus and to protect your life from the collateral damage of other people's suffering. We share in Christ's suffering so we can share in Christ's comfort and whatever comes, we share it, period. So if everybody's in need and everybody's responsible, then the real question for us, where we want to get practical this morning, is, is how can we join in on this? We see that God's building this community of afflicted comforters where everybody needs care and everybody's giving care. What's our role in it? How can we join them? Now that we've seen this forest, I'm going to go back over the same verses and I just want to pull out a few trees. Things that are just useful tips to us if we want to lean into this culture that God is, we trust God is building. This text speaks to, those who are, uh, to, speaks to us directly when we're the ones who are suffering. And it speaks to us directly when we're the ones giving comfort. And I want to break down this how we can join him section into those two categories. I want to, I want to pull out or, or, or point to, rather, some of the trees that will help you understand how to view your own pain, your suffering, your affliction, whatever word you want to use. Paul is giving us a very specific way that he wants us to view it when, when we encounter the hard things that all of us are going to encounter. I want to help you see what those are. How to think about your suffering in a way that's healthy and God-honoring. And then I want to go back through and help you to see the, the, the tips that he offers to us in our comforting of other people. In other words, let me put it this way. We want, to, we want to show how the text leads us in our suffering to embrace what God is doing in us. And how in our comforting to embrace what God is doing through us. The rest of our time we're going to do two, those two things. What from this text can we learn about how to embrace what God is doing in us, in our suffering? And how can we learn to embrace what God is doing through us in our comforting of each other? Let's start with the suffering. So this is for you. Whether you're suffering acutely now, or whether you will soon enough, there's great wisdom for us here in how to think about it and how to push through it. There's a big danger for us, a natural tendency that all of us have in our suffering to be isolated by suffering. We could be isolated in it from God because it feels like he's abandoned us or is mistreating us. We can be isolated from each other because it feels like nobody else can understand or handle what we're dealing with. You can even be isolated from other parts of your own life. I mean, one, one of my favorite writers talking about suffering talks about the, the ten, our tendency in suffering to sort of shrink down our whole world, and even our view of ourselves to the size of our pain. Whatever it is that's causing us pain, that's all we see. And we can't see the other good things that are in our life. So sometimes we're even isolated from ourselves, from other parts of our life by our pain. Isolation, in other words, is, is natural in suffering. And Paul, in this text, is calling us how to look outside of ourselves, how to resist that isolating tendency, to look not at ourselves in our pain, but to look to God and to look to Jesus, and to look to each other instead. Here's, here's how to embrace what God is doing in you. Here's what this text points us to. Three things that God is doing in you, in your suffering. Here's number one. 
in your suffering, according to what Paul's saying, God is teaching you to rely on him. In your suffering, God is teaching you to rely on him. This, is, this comes out especially in verse 9. It's, it's all the way through, but it especially comes out there where Paul's talking about himself, talking about how he felt like he'd received this sentence of death. He really felt like he was at the edge. He couldn't do anything else to change his life. But, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's how Paul thinks about his suffering. It would be easy for you to sit there this morning and think that the kind of comfort this passage talks about over and over really only makes sense for the comfortable. That when you start out with a pretty comfortable life, then then comfort makes sense because it's just sort of topping up. It's just sort of icing on a cake that's already pretty good. In other words, that that the only way this kind of comfort can really work is if you're in denial about how the world really is. Paul's actually saying just the opposite. Paul's saying the kind of comfort he wants to give only really works when you're brutally honest about how the world really is. This is the kind of comfort you can't get until you recognize that things are worse than you thought they were, that you actually have No other option, no other place to turn. The only way to get connected to God and his comfort is to be stripped down of everything else. That's what he's saying. Only through relentless honesty, with harsh and clear-eyed realism about how the world is, do you find yourself with a comfort that won't be stripped away by death. Anything else is just a band-aid. Paul doesn't want a faith that's tied to getting what you want from life. He, he, he moves, too, past this sort of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger attitude. That's one way a culture might teach you to think about suffering, that suffering is how you're refined and prepared and hardened for the life that's in front of you. Paul's like, he's done with that. No, 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 I, my suffering brought me to the end. I am a dead man. That's what my suffering showed me. I have no move. My suffering teaches me not to be stronger so that I can hunker down and push through. It teaches me that I have no strength apart from strength that God gives. So, until we're made so desperate that we see we have no hope to bring about the change we desperately want, until we see that for what really matters, we may as well be dead. We may continue to rely on ourselves or some other hope that just won't get the job done. Paul's saying that in your suffering, you need to recognize what God is doing. is showing you that the only hope you have is a power that raises the dead. Nothing else will do. Have you been there? Maybe, are you there right now? If you are, friend, take heart. Because God is preparing you for the only comfort there is. He is preparing you to rely on Him. That's the first thing God is doing in our suffering. Here's the second. Paul tells us that in our suffering, if we want to embrace what God is doing in us, we need to recognize that He's connecting us to Jesus' suffering. This is verses 5 through 7. We already read them. We talked about how suffering 
often isolates us, that we can fixate on the kind of the struggles that we're having and how they're different from the struggles other people are having. End up feeling like we're unknown or misunderstood or maybe even untouchable. That is normal. That's the way we normally engage with pain. And I, um, I, I've experienced it and I've heard it from you guys over and over and over and over again. I, you're not alone if that's how you feel. That's normal. However, it's, it's awful to feel that way. There's no hope in that. Because what we're doing is we're identifying ourselves completely with our suffering. I am my pain. An identity that's just mine. An identity that's not shared. An identity that separates me from other people rather than binding me to them. Paul's saying in verse 5, it, by, by, by pointing us back to Jesus' sufferings, he's saying that the most important thing about my sufferings is not that they're mine, not that they're different from yours, not that they set me apart from you. The most important thing about my sufferings, Paul's saying, is that they look like Jesus' sufferings. He looks out of his own pain to Jesus' pain. He sees now that he understands something more about Jesus through his pain. He sees that Jesus understands something about him through his pain. His pain is driving him to deeper connection to Jesus. And when you're deeply connected to Jesus in your pain, then all of a sudden you're also deeply connected to all the other people who are deeply connected to Jesus in their pain. All of a sudden our pain becomes more about connecting with one another through Christ than about separating ourselves from each other. When Jesus is someone you look to as a, as a man who experienced everything you do, who understands everything that you're going through. It helps you avoid the comparison game with other people. It turns the benchmark for what I'm going through into, into what Jesus went through. So I'm not going to compare my pain to other people's pain. Friends, it's one of the worst things you can possibly do when you're suffering. Because it's only going to lead you to one of two places. You start playing the comparison games. You're going to comparing what I'm going through to what other people are going through, then either it's going to lead you to self-righteousness where you feel that your suffering is so much greater than what they're dealing with they can't possibly get you and kind of look down on people in that way. Or it's going to lead you to shame. My suffering is nothing compared to their suffering, so why can't I just get over it? Look at how bad their life is, and yet I feel completely completely undone by this little thing I'm dealing with. Why can't I just get over it? And just shame. Either you're going to compare yourself to others and feel better about yourself than them. That's pride. Or you're going to compare yourself to others and feel awful about yourself. And that's shame. And neither of them, neither of them are going to lead you anywhere. But when Jesus is your primary reference in your suffering, and when Jesus is not just your primary reference for your pain, but you know he's also my primary reference for my pain, when, when, when we look at what Jesus suffered, compare our sufferings to his, then all of a sudden we start to realize that, that Jesus gets me, that Jesus is with me, that Jesus is with my friends. And if we're both with Jesus, we're both understood by him, we're both comforted by him, then we're with each other too. We share everything.
One more thing. This transition just to the, to, to the tips for us as comforters. What is God doing in my suffering? What should I be paying attention to? Well, you should pay attention to the, the fact that God is, you should embrace the fact that God is teaching you to rely on him. That's one thing he's doing. He's also connecting you to Jesus' suffering. So those are more important to you than anything else about who you are. And then finally, he's preparing you to comfort the suffering. That's the burden of this whole passage. In your pain, God is preparing stories of deliverance that don't just bring you closer to him, but bring others the help that they need. So what Paul means, I think, in verse 6, when he talks about his own affliction as something that brings comfort to them. I'm afflicted so that you're comforted. I have to be afflicted so that I can tell you how great God was for me in my affliction so that you can then be comforted in what you're going through. Your pain means life for other people, in other words. I think that's a wonderful thing to think about in your suffering. What I'm going through right now, God is using and will use to bring life to other people. And put all these three things together, and what it shows us is that our suffering is not some sort of detour. It's not some sort of roadblock. It's the only path forward. It is the only way to get to where God wants you to be. One of the, we have this uh, children's version of a Christian classic called The Pilgrim's Progress that we read a lot in my house. And um, One of the main themes of this story is an allegory written hundreds of years ago. It's really wonderful. And there's a great children's adaptation of it uh, with some really cool pictures in it. Well, it, one, of the, one of the main themes of that story is that there's only one gate to go through to get to, to get to the celestial city, to get to heaven. And there's only one road to follow in getting to heaven. And that road is full of things like a slough, which is another word for like a Louisiana marsh that you get stuck in, or, uh, or, or, or the valley of the shadow of death is on that road, and dragons come swooping down at you on that road. This road is full of hard things, but there's only one road to get there, and the story is peppered with these people who try to get onto the road, get to the celestial city, following their own ways. Either they don't want to go, they, they want to get around that roadblock, or they don't want to go through that narrow gate. They'd rather come over the wall about halfway through the journey, or they'd rather just go straight to the gates themselves. All these people who, who see these sufferings as detours they want to get around rather than the only path to get where they need to be. And what they learn the hard way is that, that actually avoiding suffering would require the detour. They're the ones choosing detours, choosing other roads, choosing other entry methods. But suffering is the only path to life. That's how Paul would help us to see our suffering. Now, here's how he helps us see our job in helping each other deal with suffering. Words for the sufferer, but also words for the comforter. How to embrace our role in giving each other the care that we need. I want to give you three quick things here as well. Really quick. I promise. I swear. Really quick. Here's the first thing that we can embrace about what God is wanting to do through us. We can comfort each other through our stories. That's what Paul's doing, right? He's saying, back in Asia, you would not believe what went down. We despaired even of life. We were completely beyond our strength, but that was just to teach us to rely on God who raises the dead. He delivered us. He will deliver us. We've put our hope on him. He's going to deliver us again. What's Paul doing? He's taking a story from his life and he's telling it 
as a story of God's deliverance. He's comforting people through the comfort that he received. So friends, in your stories of God's deliverance of you in pain, you've got a powerful opportunity to watch God redeem something awful that you've been through by giving life through it to somebody else in, in, in their pain. Tell stories. Tell it honestly. That's what Paul's doing in 8 through 10. Now, I do want to warn you here. You've got to avoid a couple of really important and tempting pitfalls when you're telling each other your story. And I want to recommend this, this little guide to you here. This is a new book. came out recently. Uh, it's on the resource table over there. It's called Being There, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting. It has a chapter in it that is worth the price of the book. And then some. Chapter 8. Whatever you do, don't do these things. <laughs> it's like 10 things you should never do when you're comforting someone who's in pain. And it's really good. And it, there's two, two of his things that he says in here in that, in that warning chapter that, that go straight to our telling of stories to each other. And here's something you want to avoid. When you're telling your story, what happened to you and what God did to deliver you from it, you don't want to try to fix people through what you learn in your story. Don't do that. I do that all the time. It never works. I'm horrible at this. I want to fix things. I want to make it better. And a lot of times we think because of the lessons we've learned the hard way, we've got the three things that you need to do. It'll get you, trust me, just do these three things. You'll be great. Don't do that. What does Paul do? He just tells his story. I was in a hard place. God was there for me. I'm trusting him. He'll deliver me again. I'm trusting he'll deliver you too. Don't try to fix them. Just tell them the truth. He also says, next thing he says is, don't try, to, don't try to compare what you've been through with what they're going through. That never ends well. In fact, comparing what you've been through to what they're going through is probably going to sound cheap and alienating, and it just isn't necessary. Just be honest about what you've experienced. Do that with a focus on who you've experienced in it, on God's deliverance, and let God use your pain and his goodness to help encourage other people. You don't have to fix them. You don't have to know exactly what they're going through. You probably don't. Thank goodness Jesus does. That leads to the second main point. So we want to comfort through our story, but we want to only comfort by God's deliverance, not ours. You don't want to ever comfort someone with what you can offer them. That will not end well for them. It will not end well for you. You offer them yourself as the solution to their problems, and you will wear down. And you will leave them disappointed and unhelped no matter how much you're able to give. The only thing we've got is our stories as vehicles of God's comfort. The only thing we have is what God has done for us. And so I ask you this. In your comfort of other people, what you offer them when they express their pain to you, are, is Jesus necessary to the comfort you're offering? Would God have to have the kind of power that could raise someone from the dead for your solution to work? If not, then you've offered them a substitute. It will let them down. It will probably wear you out too. Here's the last thing. We comfort through your story. Comfort them with God's deliverance, not yours. And finally, comfort them with what God has promised, not with anything He hasn't. In verses... 8 to 11, Paul says, He delivered me in this one specific thing, this deadly peril. Now I'm putting my hope on him that he's going to deliver me again. He's, he's pointing ahead to what God has promised to do. He is not telling his friends that God will get rid of the specific pain that they're feeling. 
because he might not. Sometimes lifelong suffering in one particular area is what God will use in you to get you ready for Jesus. He might not take away the thing you want him to take away. And if as a comforter we're telling people that he will, we're probably just setting them up to be let down by God. This is, this is uh, one, of the, one of the words of, of caution and counsel that the, the author of this book, Being There, offers. Dave Furman, he's a pastor who struggles with a chronic nerve condition where he can't even use his hands most of the time. There's too much nerve pain in them. They, don't, they just won't function. Here's what he says. He's, this is, this is under that, in that whatever you do, don't do these things chapter. And he's saying, don't promise deliverance now. And here's why. He says, over the past decade or so, Various well-meaning people have kindly told me that God was going to heal me. They've tried to encourage me that since I'm a man of faith and I love God, I'll be healed. Some have said that because I'm a pastor and I'm doing the Lord's work, I'll be healed. Many have said that God would bless my faithfulness by giving me good health. Others have said, it's all going to be okay. Now, they're right and they're wrong. God will one day heal me, but it might not come here on earth. I may never get to pick up my baby in this life. However, in the next, I will not shed another tear as I ponder whether I'll ever be able to play ball with my sons. In this life, I may not be able to button my shirt and put on my shoes by myself. But in the next life, I will be perfectly dressed in Christ's righteousness. Instead of promising deliverance in this life, point them to God's presence and a future hope that will never let them down. That's what Paul's doing here. That's what Paul will do in 2 Corinthians 4. And I want to read these verses to put a tool in your hand before I pray that God will help us to build this community. Here's what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, we want to hold on for that day and we want to help each other hold on for that day. So please give us confidence in your promises and protect us from our desire to improve upon them. Give us wisdom, grace, clarity in our care for each other, and help us to hold on for the day when what is unseen now will be revealed once and for all. Hold us, we pray, through each other. In Jesus' name, amen.